0: Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, thriller writer Brian Shea steps into the interrogation room to answer a couple questions about his writing. Brian spent most of his adult life in service to his country and local community. He honorably served as an officer in the U.S. Navy. In his civilian life, he became a cop and reached the rank of detective during an 11-year law enforcement career in Texas and Connecticut. Somewhere in the mix, he spent five years as a fifth-grade school teacher. His latest release, entitled Murder 8, is the fifth in his Agent Nick Lawrence series and released last month. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Brian, and thank you for your service to our nation and to your communities.
1: Thanks, Gavin, and thanks for having me, and I appreciate your service as well.
0: Oh, I, I, I was having too much fun to call it service, man. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I absolutely love the, the, the Nick Lawrence prequel um, entitled Unkillable. And it's such a great introduction to this character. And I'm working my way through Murder 8 now. Uh, for readers who are new to you in the series, what do you want them to know about this new release, Murder 8?
1: So, uh, you know, when I was on the job out here in Connecticut, I was in a, in a city uh, outside of the Hartford area. And we have a huge heroin problem in the northeast, uh monstrous actually, uh as far as it's reached epidemic proportions CDC wise and uh, and the overdose rate has uh has really shot up, especially with the introduction of fentanyl in the last couple of years. And um I I try to take that real world um situation that, that I was facing when I was an ARC. Um, and then kind of try to give an entertaining twist, but hopefully the, the readers uh, outside of this area that may may not have that exposure, you know, see what kind of the dilemma we're facing and, and the, the devastation it has on community.
0: Yeah, so I actually ended up, I was working with elements at Boston PD's NARC unit a few years back when my agency realized we needed to to create a pre-planned unknown chemical response for our cops because of what you guys were going through up in the northeast it was terrifying to hear how how fentanyl has ravaged that city and and out of pure survival necessity and self-preservation ended up changing the way that cops there can respond to these overdoses and even drug cases it doesn't sound like you had to do a a whole lot of research to get all the details right because you were actually in the thick of this
1: yeah i mean so the the neat thing of of kind of writing what you know or living in that that uh that zone of, of, uh, actually smelling it and tasting it and knowing, I mean, not, not Fendo, but knowing, yeah. uh, you know, knowing what the, what, what those scenes look and feel like from a first uh, person perspective, it, it, it's kind of like an automatic cheat sheet. Um, but what I really want, and, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give people, cause I don't think a lot of people really understand, um, you know, how dangerous it is. So I go around the state and I teach, I still teach um a variety of, of topics one of one of which is narcotics and um and fentanyl is and, and heroin uh, are, are two big pushes uh mm-hmm. in my instructional piece and in the dangers like uh, you'd be surprised how many cops even in this in this general area aren't aware that you know fentanyl in powder form it can take as little as a couple grains of sand like size wise mm-hmm. Uh, to have a, an overdose effect, meaning potentially be life threatening. And the other scary thing is it can be absorbed, obviously, through injection, which uh, uh, users is their typical method of ingestion, uh, but are snorted. But even more scary is transdermal. So, meaning mm-hmm. if you touch it, uh, your pores are open, you can absorb uh, that chemical and have a massive uh, reaction to it. And I, and I, I share those experiences, and, and when they hit those houses that are known. Um, we had a, a SWAT call out here in the, in the Hartford area where 11 operators went down, throwing a flashbang into a, basically a distribution where they were in the process of packaging up a bunch of fentanyl yeah, yeah, yeah. and laced heroin. And it put down um, the majority of the team on entry. So it's some scary stuff.
0: Yeah, that stuff is really incredibly terrifying and, and especially when it gets aerialized like that, you know, it's, you can't see it. You're probably not going to smell it or taste it until it's, it's too late and it's already in your system. You know, it's, it's, I, I, I cannot imagine a worse enemy.
1: Oh yeah. It's, it's terrifying. And so I tried to take that little piece that I know and then uh, with murder Aid, it's one of the street uh, or, you know, uh, street slangs for it. You know, there's a whole bunch of uh, jackpot, tango and cash, uh, Murder 8 was one of them. I, th- I felt like Murder 8 <laughs> really just kind of told people, even though it's funny reading some reviews, sometimes people are like, I didn't know this was a crime thriller. Murder usually is an indicator uh, yeah. that it might be a crime thriller. But, um, you know, it had a nice ring to it. It tied in uh, nicely, I think, with the direction I was taking the series at the time. And-
0: yeah, in reading through this, political dynamics that you portray in this story reminded me a lot of the, the, the federal lend Bias statute. And I imagine this probably is fairly consistent with what that debate might have been like back in the what was it mid-80s when, when Lynn Bias died from the cocaine overdose and, and this federal law came in to basically have a, a felony murder rule, essentially, for drug distribution. Did you intentionally draw that similarity or draw upon any of that, uh, that historical reference?
1: Well, I didn't go with the the historical side of it. What, what's actually starting to trend now here, current trend-wise, is... Um, so neighboring town or neighboring uh, states, uh, New York and one was starting to go after uh, a couple of years back. Was starting to target the dealers that could be directly linked to overdose deaths, and charging them with with manslaughter. And so a couple of towns and cities in in Connecticut started to do that as well. And so it became kind of like the driving force behind the, the story. Is let's not. And I try to make it a you know this this book is is set in Boston. And I said, all right, well, what if this is a a politically driven initiative now that they're really trying to make very nationwide a running platform for the senator? And how would that, how could you make it so that nationwide people started to really take notice? And that's kind of where I started to play with the idea of the story. And that's kind of the direction it kind of drove it. But. 100% 100% these dealers, you know, they know, especially if they're t- tainting heroin with fentanyl, they know the causative effect. They know how dangerous that stuff is. Some of them, I, I've talked to them and when I was in narcotics, I was, I, you know, it's a very gray area. You get to know, So, and they know how dangerous it is. So if they're packaging it and they're not scientists, right? So when they're cutting it into heroin, uh, there's no like, oh, okay, we're going to use uh, this much. They're just kind of cutting and slicing it, you know, hoping, hoping the batch is good enough that it gets people to come back and not not and you know an overdose is actually a win for them because people are like that must be really good. I think I did one bag and he's out. So then people actually come for that. It becomes an endorsement but what what they do in the fentanyl world is of, of distribution, they don't stamp their bags. So that's a unique piece of this that m- most people won't know is heroin dealers stamp their bags. Fentanyl uh, bags typically will not have a stamp because they know police lean in the direction of of the dangerousness of that and the knowledge of that dangerousness and can pursue those charges now.
0: Yeah. And from, from a, a craft perspective, I really like the authenticity of of, of the police aspects of this book. It's so saturated with genuine experience, I feel like I can wring it out. But you haven't let the, the authenticity or the procedural part of this slow the pace into the story, and you haven't let the investigative procedures get in the way of the, of the plot. And that's done so well, I, I have to believe it's absolutely deliberate. How did you go about making sure that you didn't let all of your cop experience actually get in the reader's way?
1: That, that's a, a great question. So I try to write in the, in kind of the context and the way I like to read a story. And I always thought to myself, like, you know, there are some authors out there and, and I know that page count sometimes is indicative of binding size and there's gotta be certain, you know, layers mm-hmm. to equate to a hardcover, And I, I feel like it tastes like filler. Right. And I, and I didn't want that in my books. And yeah. so without being just a true relentless pace, I wanted to expedite where I could, and I didn't want to just drone on about, uh, you know, aspects of it. So I took the high points, tried to ride. I call it the Costanza effect, right? Like I I just, (laughs) I give you that short bit. I I leave it on a high, you know, each chapter, I try to end it in a way that you're driven to the next chapter. I like when readers reach out to me and say, you know, I was going to put it down and eight chapters later, it was two in the morning, you know, that kind of effect. And I try to drive the story in that regard because I love it when a book does that to me. Police procedure is typically slow and painful. So what I did is I took my knowledge of it and then I tore out those pieces that I hated to do. So I kind of expedite and I pull out and I extract and I try to create a very tight timeline from beginning to end. And I actually map the days when I do my outlines. I map the days it takes to get from the start point of my my story, whatever the genesis of the story is to its resolve. And I try to have it like book two in my series, I think takes place over a 38 hour period. And obviously in the real world that, that may not take place. Right. But um, I I love that feel like you just can't stop.
0: How do your characters form it in your mind? And where do you go about crafting fully formed villains, especially in a story like Murder 8, where You've got to get readers to relate to or at least understand people like drug dealers and drug traffickers.
1: So I, I try to take and, and not specific people, but elements of people that I've known right in my life. And so the drug side of it was kind of easy for the time that I worked in narcotics. And even when I was a street cop and the connections I made, the world, especially like TV and movies, wants to pay drug dealers as so he's very like cookie cutter. uh
0: a caricature yeah
1: yeah it, it, they, they're they just out there and they don't they're not real people but see i've i've known drug dealers i had to work with them in narcotics and in that working with them you like we talk about pizzas we like the same pizza you know you, you're riding around with these guys for for hours sometimes trying to set up something in motion and and you've got them, in, and maybe they're a low-level dealer or whatever and they're trying to set up dealer number two in the chain and you're just talking to them and and there's just regular people that made like different choices. And so yeah. once you start yeah. to see him as that, you can write them, I think, in a realistic way. Um, I had a brother who um, was, he had a drug problem uh, uh, growing up uh, until he ultimately took his life. You right. know, he is, he's in a lot of my stories. And when I used to flip, uh, you know, for better term, flip snitches, people used to say I was good at it. And the reason I was good at it was because I treated them like human beings, because to me, they were mm-hmm. all my brother. Right. I know it sounds kind of weird, but like I saw them and my brother was smarter than me. He was a better athlete, natural athlete than me. Um, He just kind of made some choices that just derailed him. And I always think, like, what does it take for somebody to hit bottom? And I created a character in that story, uh, Murder 8, who's reached the junkie level and he's really at a desperate point. And uh, but I feel in that backstory because what people want to think is that those addicted are out there and they are. It's like almost like they're born. These, like, living under the bridge. There's a woman living under the bridge in the city I worked in that used to be a pharmacist, right? So uh, I know the different journeys these people take to get to that place, and it, they never started that way. And at some point, they were somebody's child, or they're somebody's mother, you know, or they're somebody's father. And, it, and it's a really unique world. It's the narcotics world. It is a true shades of gray, as you know. It is not black and white, and it, I think it is the – it's the most kind of delicate area in law enforcement.
0: Yeah. And, you know, for me, the, the dichotomy there was so different than every other assignment I'd ever had, right? Like you're working with these folks who, you know, work in patrol, like you just see them as a target, right? You see them walking down the street and you're absolutely going to stop and make a consensual contact and see if you can get in their pockets and, and yep. get them hemmed up, you know, until you get a little bit more experience and, and a little bit deeper into the dope world and start realizing they're suffering incredibly along with all of their family. You know, it's not just the the addict who ends up really suffering and and really uh, getting crushed under the heel of this boot. It's everybody who loves him and cares about him. I worked with a, another dope cop briefly that he started, uh, came over to the unit and like, he wouldn't even shake their hand. I'm like, you're not going to be here long. Like oh my that. God. It's, <laughs> this is I'm glad you said that. You. That,
1: that, that. There is such a truth to that. People used to say that to me, you know, like, I mean, I was also our unit's proctologist, right? So if you hit it, I found it, right? So I'm pretty <laughs> much, I'm a gamer when it comes to, to digging it out. But, um, you know, but I, I, I never felt, you know, hey, I may hit some sanitizer after that conversation's over, but I never felt that disconnect. I it, And the more I humanized them, you know, I, ha- I don't know how many times, you know, an addict would say to me, you know, we're in, we're in the point of processing them, for whatever little amount of drugs we had, right? Because the point was you arrest them and then it's leverage, right? And it's mm-hmm. a weird game. Yep. And and the arrest means nothing. When you're in patrol, you used to think those drug arrests mattered. You know, you get that patrol guy that like keeps a tally. Hey, I had five drug arrests you know, this week. I'm really good. Right. But then you yeah. you go back and you look yeah. at you like, without any point and purpose beyond that arrest, then it's a complete waste of time and police resource. Right. If you could take that arrest and go up four rungs in the organization and maybe get somebody that's actually out there doing some damage, then it matters. Right. So, but I found those people to be actually for the most part, like really interesting. Sometimes I enjoyed their conversation more than other cops. And I know it sounds crazy, but like, (laughs) I just did. I just, I found them to be very like, and, and that was, that was what gave me kind of, uh, I guess an ace in a hole in, 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 in flipping people is I just, I'd spend hours, hours with them after an arrest, just sitting in a room and like my unit would go home. Sometimes those guys would go home and they'd be like, all right, you're going to still keep talking. All right, I'm going to go. And, and, and I had a couple of theories of why I did it. A I know a junkies turnaround. Once they get fixed on the outside, they're probably not going to give you any more Intel when they're sick. It's like, a, I call it the invisible phone book. You just, it's like beating them. You know, they just, they're going to yeah. give you that yeah. info they wouldn't give. A day from now, right? But I also didn't mind the conversation. Sometimes the smells were were painful, but uh, you know they are human beings, and they say you're the first crop to treat me like a human being. And and in some ways, that was kind of sad to hear, right? Because how many times has that person been arrested, right? Like this guy didn't rob my house, this guy didn't burglarize my car, you know. You know, he had a couple bags of dope on him when, when you found him. Like, what kind of monster is he really? On the flip too, I think of it as in a world where police are struggling to maintain face, you know, where everybody's got a cell phone out and every story's being told in 14 seconds after it happened with a three-second clip. We are at times targets, right? And I remember being in one of the project sections in the city I worked in, and I was I was in having a difficult time with uh, an arrestee, and one of the kids who's now serving for a gun charge, a shooting, but came out and blasted the neighborhood verbally to back up because at some point i don't even remember when i did it i treated him fairly Mm -hmm. and it was like having a personal bodyguard while i was actually arresting his brother Mm -hmm. where uh, you know what i mean where it could have easily turned into something ridiculous he stood by and actually berated his brother for offending me yep for disrespecting me and then told everyone else kind of about you know kind of keep their you know basically was my own little verbal security guard and i thought that was unique And I really liked the kid, Uh, you know, and then he got caught up in a shooting and, um, but in that, in that world, that's kind of how it goes. But it was nice. And I knew the mother and I had a respectful conversation with her. She respected me. And when you build that, in my opinion, that's, that's where you should be seeking to go is those connections that enable you. And when you can treat everybody nice, right? Because sometimes... Mm -hmm they're not going to give you that opportunity. And, and anyone can tell you that there's been plenty of times where I've had to go hands-on, but I only do it when that point is, is forced. It's never done yeah. out of malice. It's never done out of like, I've, I come in with that attitude. I, I try to come in and, and hope you can go that time without a problem. And then when, you when it does present, people are like, Oh, well, you know, he's normally really, really calm, really collected. So obviously this situation dictated it.
0: Kind of on, on that experience note, one of the things that has really struck me with this uh, this book, Murder 8, is that you write about your character's spec ops experience with the confidence of someone who's who's been there and done that. It doesn't need to try to impress the reader or convince the reader that you know what you're actually talking about, which begs the question, were you secretly in spec ops and you're keeping it off the public radar and we shouldn't even talk about it now, or do you have a really great technical advisor?
1: So it's a funny story. So I initially uh, graduated from Northeastern in Boston, and uh, I, I commissioned into the Army, into the infantry, but was able to do an inter-service transfer to the Navy. And, and with that, I uh, transferred into uh, the basic underwater demolition SEAL class 217 mm-hmm. in 97. And uh, I lasted it's, it was a brutal program, and I lasted uh, in it until February of 98, and then I I rang the bell and then I ended up serving my time, you know, in other capacities as, a, as an operations officer, basically a general aviation officer on an aircraft carrier for deployed. And a unique experience in and of itself, but it was interesting. So there's a piece of the spec ops world that like uh, just a taste of it. So in book one. There's a character, Declan Enright, who every experience he had in book one, as far as training goes, was a personal experience of mine. And it was a cathartic release. I don't usually talk about it. I, you know, it was a, uh, I wasn't pleased that I left the program. It's probably one of my life, one of my big life regrets, but it was a unique class. And I still keep in contact with some of the guys that that went on. And what I wanted to do in those characters, cause they are done quite a bit in stories is I wanted to make them real people. And the character in book one, who carries through the series, but is he was basically the main protagonist in book one, In the Nick uh, Lawrence character was kind of his shadow. And then I decided yeah. to, to carry the series with Nick because of the crime element. It enabled me to touch on different crimes, whereas I knew where the Declan character, spec ops-wise, it would be so jack reacher-esque that i felt like it's been done and i try to do kind of a mirroring of the of the two worlds and i felt that the nick drove the nick character drove the story forward but yeah i try to make declan as unique and human as as uh, an operator could be right
0: in marrying those two worlds, I really like the way that you've created this Valhalla group, right—the the, the non-government agency that's you know basically off off books and does some contract work for the government domestically, kind of like a, what I imagine a, a Blackwater Triple Canopy would be, you know, working inside the U.S. But you didn't waste any words explaining how that's accomplished logistically or through funding or anything you just gave the reader, this is what it is, and it's immediately acceptable. I personally would have been really tempted to go through some kind of diatribe about explaining the legalese of how this came to be. And I I really appreciate as a reader that you didn't waste my time with that.
1: Well I appreciate that. I, I you know I take I, I guess it was kind of a risk because I know the accepted formula would be to go that route, to to really get into the minutiae of how an organization like this would be formed. Who would be the funding agency for the oversight? How would they create these, uh, the vaults that they have scattered throughout the country mm-hmm. where they conduct their interrogations mm-hmm. and surveillance ops from? And then I thought, why? Because <laughs> I, I felt like I could lose readers in that that piece of story. I write, I, so my goal is to write a, I think the crime action junkies will enjoy it. But I also mm-hmm. want it to be as broad scope. Yes. As like, I've got my wife to read my books, which is a huge accomplishment, right? Because, you know, I know her genre and uh, I actually like her genre too. She's like that dystopian young adult novel. I, I enjoy reading those too. I'm kind of a really an eclectic mix of books, but it, it's kind of neat for me when I hear somebody that says, oh, it's not really what I normally read, but I ended up really liking it. It's going to sound crazy, but I try to do it with minimal profanity too. And I know it's like even my, I'm working on a new series right now and and, and it's a, it's a robust crime novel, a gritty and has all the, there's not one F-bomb in the whole book. And the reason I did that is I want everyone to be able to read it. Wow. You know, I have a, a teenage daughter who likes three of my books and I keep thinking to myself like, ugh, you know, like, do I really want her to to be bombarded with her dad dropping the F-bomb, you know, in multiple pages, And I know that's how we talk. And if if Mark Wahlberg's listening and he wants to make one of my books into a movie, I, I, uh, I know he'll put the f bomb in, and I appreciate that because I like his his. Uh, I think it works well for him. But I, in the story, sometimes people people can fill it in. If you're if you drop it every other word, which in my normal dialect, I have a tendency to have to hold back a little bit. Like as it does come out, I was a sailor right by trade, so I have I have to curse. I just feel like people can fill it in, in their minds where they want to. They fill they feed that gap. But when you force somebody and the biggest readership I would say is probably your people in the 50 years and beyond is probably your biggest readership they're really devouring books and they don't I think as a whole want to hear it so I try to give meet everybody where they're at give them a gritty thriller have the action presents it they'll read a horrible violent scene but you drop the F-bomb in that scene and they're like I don't like this reader or this writer you know
0: and I'm going to give you negative reviews so nobody else buys your
1: stuff <laughs> Right, right. You know they, they're gonna smash you with, their, you know, and and you know, hey, I would take a reader review and hold more weight to it than you know one one of the listed review companies because I value the reader more than I value anybody else. As far you know, if they're if they're in, I try not to read the reviews, but I am. I read every review, and I I tell myself. My wife actually told me stop it because she'll see my mood change yeah. some days. Like I'll just be like I'll walk in, everything is great. Ten minutes later, I'm like, Ugh. she's like, what's wrong? I'm like. I don't know. Just took a took a hit, and it's it, and, and you know, I'll read it to her. She's like, "Seriously, stop reading these things." And it doesn't guide my writing, but I think as a writer, especially early stages like me, I'm I'm open to hearing what other people have to have to say about it because the goal is readers, right? And the more readers you can please with your work, the better off your work will be.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the mistakes that I made early on was that exact thing, and the first couple of books in, in my crime series, uh, the language was very authentic for what it sounds like walking through a detective bureau. Right. After like, you know, three sim- or three consecutive reviews about, you know, is a really good, interesting story, but there was an awful lot of swearing in here. <laughs> like I realized I needed to tone it down and then I did a control F on the F word and uh, I was really surprised. So it, it, I cut a couple pages out, just taking that out.
1: It's it's funny. I I actually asked a group of authors that I'll say encircle me to really help me out. I I posed that question, "Can you write a gritty crime thriller without the F-bomb?" And and I, it was kind of unanimous that yes you can, but if it needs to be said, then say it. And so I looked at where like my my detective isn't going to say, "Oh, fooey." Right? Like that then people would say, <laughs> "That's crazy." Right. Or, or, if, or if they you know they, they stump their toe or get shot and they go, ah, oh, shiitake mushrooms, you know, like, yes, <laughs> you know, that is, people will be like, what? It would be as damaging as the other way they, you know, you have enough people saying, like, what is this A children's book? Right. So. Um, What I do is I I look at sentences where I would normally use it, and then I try to restructure the phrasing of that sentence or paragraph so that it may may not need it, but the point and impact of what would be said is still there. And hopefully I've done it. Um, Hopefully people won't come away and say it's like a cozy mystery because I don't write those. Yes. It's a delicate balance.
0: Do you remember the, the moment that you first realized you could write and that someone besides
1: your mother wanted to read what you had to say? <laughs> it's a good question. I So the the start point or the genesis for book one, which was originally titled The Camel's Back and then was subsequently uh, retitled recently um, uh, as Kill List, kind of came about over 20 plus years ago on an operation overseas where uh, some civilians were killed. And so I look at my life and I said, what if there was a, a, an attack at like my kid's school and what would I do as a parent if I ever lost a child? And I tried to create a character from that, that mindset. And so that's kind of where it started long, long ago. And then um, when I was a cop in, in Texas, I used to run the San Gabriel river, which is in Georgetown, Texas, which is where I used to live. And that's where I was a police officer. And I used to run the river and, and varsity blues was filmed at that football stadium there. And I used to run by it. And, and I thought to myself, cause, cause Friday night football in Texas is like religion. And I thought to myself, there was no barrier to the stadium at the time. And it was, and that's where one of the attacks in book one comes from is that run. Every day I thought, how simple could these soft targets? And so these things started like really circling in my brain. And I started this book multiple times from multiple different angles until a few years ago, my teenager said to me, we were on a daddy-daughter vacation. And it was after I had gone into sex crimes. And it was really bothering me working in sex crimes because it was primarily children. Cause they couldn't talk about it. No one wanted to yeah. hear those stories. I mean, nobody wants to really hear cop stories unless they're funny. Like narcotic stories were always funny, you know, yeah. breaking a glove in somebody's ass when you're looking for crack, that's funny stuff. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, people can enjoy that. No one is going to enjoy a good yarn about a horrible, uh, you know, uh, uh sex crime. And so I found that I, I was becoming introverted as far as those stories went. It was starting to build up and I was taking my cases home and it was becoming a real stress, stress part for me. So while we're on this vacation, she says to me, we're just pitching ideas, uh, at the pool and I we we're talking about stories and ideas and she's very creative. And she said, you know, you need to write this story. And so I made a promise to her and, uh, she just, my teenager does not live with us full time. Uh, she's from a previous marriage. And so, She went home and I went home and I wasn't going to see her again for two months. And in the two month interim, I wrote the first 5,000 words of the story that became Kill List on the plane ride home. And I finished the rough, the very rough manuscript before I saw her again two months later for a couple points to prove to her that I could do it. To show her that if you put your mind to something, it can be accomplished and then in the end, it took a massive rewrite because I didn't know what I was doing. And then some late stages uh, editing and and some next level stuff that that made it what it is today. But you know that that book will always hold a special place because that you know and I think it was a long time in the coming. That story's been building inside of me for over twenty years. You know,
0: one of the things that I, I think that non cop writers struggle with, from my perspective, is, is getting the cop personalities and the internal department politics and relationships right and. For me, I, I don't believe the words actually exist. For me to adequately explain the complex relationship that cops have with each other, with their bosses and, and with administrators, it, it's one of those things that I think you have to experience to understand. And I feel like you've done that justice in this book. Um, are, are your old partners and bosses actually swimming around on the pages of this Nick Lawrence series, or is it just pieces of, of different people kind of compiled together?
1: That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I, I want to say they're kind of each character is original in and of itself, but that they are pieces of people I've known. I remember I wrote the first book and people came to me and were like, oh, that's Lieutenant so-and-so or that's Sergeant so-and-so or that's this detective. And it, and it really wasn't. Some some of the names they would throw out, I was like, never even crossed my mind when I wrote it. But you never know, I think, as a writer, what's influencing that character at the time that you created, you know, and I, so to say that, yeah, I think that all the people I've worked with over the 11 years of law enforcement and my my four years military and whatever else, you know, I've done is it was all come into play. And I think good writers, even if they've never written, I think I was always processing people and I, and I don't know why. But I felt like I was always digging deeper, uh, evaluating people for what they were. And so maybe those mental notes that I took over the years make it easy to create hopefully believable characters in the stories now that I write. And a lot of it, and this is going to sound crazy, a lot of the characters are bits and pieces of me. So like, you know, I feel like I have have like a bipolar disorder in a sense, like I have like these multiple personalities. Mm -hmm. And I dump them into characters as I see fit, and so there is a, a blending of some some personal experience too, because I think you have to have that. And I think you guys like you and and me and others that have have walked the streets and, and pushed the car, um, we have like a cheat sheet on people. And I think cops. I had a good friend of mine tell me cops are built and designed to read people yes. always. At a moment. Yeah, you're going in with a domestic, it's chaos. You have like a split second you walk in that door to decide, oh, God, who do I got to control? I've got kids crying in the background. I got this person over here. I got to separate, divide, conquer, gather information, switch with my partner, go over there, get that person, meet in the middle, figure out what's going on, and own the room all at the same time. And so you become a master of people or you fail in the job. Yes. I think that's where it really became uh, or, or was its own kind of ammo for my arsenal is I absorbed some of those experiences like deeply. And now it's very cathartic to release them on the page, even if in a fictional context, a fictional context, it's, it's, it's a powerful experience.
0: What was your greatest accomplishment, your proudest hmm. moment working behind the badge?
1: Um, so, you know, I, I used to think uh, guns and drugs was the uh, pinnacle of like uh, police work, right? You'd, you'd, snag, you'd snag the player, you know, that it, it couldn't be caught or you get the, the, the drug dealer that's supposedly a kingpin. You find out he's not and he ends up working for you two days later anyway. And so it, what what ended up happening is after a turn of events, I ended up in uh, child sex crimes uh, for my last uh, couple years as a, as a cop and in particular detective. And there was a case that was before my time in the PD. So technically a cold case. It had been a few years in the case had had collapsed, imploded, and the guy had got away. But then I had a a new victim um, and he was a serial pedophile. And what ended up happening is I went back into the old case and I was able to go and build a case around the information I had and then go back and look at the old case and find points of fact that actually could have been used in prosecution and was able to affect to a, a multi-case warrant for him. And he was out of state at the time. So we had to go and extradite him and get him arrested and coordinate with other units and other departments and, and brought him to justice and and hopefully where he'll stay for a very long time. But that I'd say was probably my best case as far as, I mean, I have many good cases. But that one, I just felt like it got somebody that was going to hurt little kids for the rest of his life. It got him off the street.
0: Yeah, those those are the ones you walk away knowing you're doing God's work that day.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we have cases that fall apart or whatever, but this one seemed to stand the test. And and it was like my biggest test as far as um, tying all the pieces together. And I I don't know, I guess if I had to say one above all others, it, it would be that.
0: Now, do we need a security clearance to ask you the same question about your Navy service?
1: No, no. You know, I mean, the Naval experience uh, was unique. Um, and like I said, where I started and then where I ended up was my last couple of years were on the Harry S. Truman uh, nuclear aircraft carrier. And, and I got to deploy as a part of uh, Operation Southern Watch pre-911. So I came back few months before uh, 9-11 and uh, and exited service actually three months before which is really a tough tough thing for me but one one of the things i can say it was kind of a unique experience was we launched in that deployment the first strike package into iraq since gulf war one um wow. and we were the first ship to transit the suez canal after the coal bombing we were the first battle group because after the coal bombing there was like a I forget how long it was, maybe eight months where, where there's kind of a moratorium on crossing the Suez mm-hmm. for terroristic threat. And I thought that that was kind of a unique experience that I remember them saying, like, we're going to cross the Suez and basically saying, screw you to terrorism. We said we're not going to be affected because otherwise the other the other uh, transit route would be around the Horn of Africa. And I thought to myself, like, we're given in. And I, I thought that was kind of a neat a neat place in time to, to say I rolled through uh, with a battle group and was the first to transit the Suez after, after the coal bombing. And and those kind of things I think were unique to, to my experience and, and it made me felt a little more connected to the bigger picture.
0: Uh, do you have a favorite fictional detective or investigator in books, TV or film that you're reading right now or watching, or one that's just holding a little more esteem than others right now?
1: So, you know, what's funny is I, 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 I was an avid reader my whole life. Uh, definitely bestowed upon me from my father. And uh and and so I've read a smattering of books and and I have a couple favorites. Um uh my my top favorite thriller books individually would be like The Devil's Teardrop by Jeffrey Deaver um mm-hmm. and Last Man Standing by uh uh David Baldacci and then uh as far as long-term character-driven uh, storylines, I've I've and I know it's probably cliche in the thriller world or a crime world is I've been kind of hooked on 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 Bosch, but now I what I do with the Harry Bosch series is I read it as kind of a, a study. I read now as a character study. I look at how they design and develop, and I like I I'm an honest person with both my own writing and others writing and I see things I like and th- see things I, I don't adhere to. And I say, you know what, I won't do that if I was good, but it, it gives me, I mean, obviously he's, he's dominated the, the genre for a long time. And so obvious there's some real pieces there that people are looking at and loving, and so I look to find those and hopefully in some way pay homage and, and do it right and follow that design a little bit in, in the creation of my stories. And I think my new series, which centers on a uh, like a Boston homicide detective named Michael Kelly, good Irish kid, yeah, is going to be more in sync with that style, at least maybe not in, as far as just overall stylistic, but just kind of hits that genre a little more clearly. Which has been actually really fun to write. Someone gave me some great advice recently and said, "Listen, uh, action throw are great crime, action throw are great, but you can write the crime police procedural with that that secret notebook in your mind. Mm-hmm. You should use that and write that because that thing is going to be that level of authenticity that few can few can hit. Absolutely. And hopefully, I think it's going to be out in the next next month or so, maybe two months. I don't, I'm not quite sure the timeline yet.
0: Keeping all of that last answer in mind, Brian, I, I asked this of all the, the authors who come on the show. Um, God forbid it should come to pass, but if you wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or even revenge artist would
1: you assign to your case? All right. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, what about, let's see, let's see. Forensically, I would take uh, Deaver's Lincoln Rhyme. Oh, yeah. Because right? because no that cat can get in there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> investigatively, I would have to default to Bosch. So if those two could team up, and then I don't want to go, uh, I don't want my, my criminal to go the route of, of criminal prosecution because it takes too long. And depending on their lawyer, they may get out. So I would hire um, Will Robbie from Baldacci's uh, series to be the. Uh, yeah hit on the final assault. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm cheating. I'm giving you three possibles. So uh, Lincoln Ryan works the crime scene. Uh, Bosch does the investigation and pisses a lot of people off. And then uh, Will Robbie comes in for the hit at the end.
0: Well, I, I greatly appreciate you spending uh, time with us, Brian, and uh, sharing your expertise and your experience, both as a cop and as a writer. Um, it, it's incredibly invaluable what, what you're doing for, for entertainment, but also for, other folks still work on the way up the mountain. Thank you so much. I
1: appreciate it, Gavin. Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been veteran cop and author Brian Shea. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.